0: Hello and welcome to NC State's Audio Abstract. I'm your host, Tracy Peake. Providing veterinary care to aquatic animals like turtles and fish can be challenging, even when you have a vet school's resources at your disposal. We're speaking today with Greg Lubart, a professor of aquatic medicine here at NC State's College of Veterinary Medicine, who knows that when treating turtles and fish, innovative solutions are part of the process. Welcome, Greg.
1: Hey, thanks, Tracy.
0: I'm glad you could be here. Let's start by talking about what makes treating fish and turtles and reptiles different from your so-called standard pets, mammals like dogs and cats.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a great question. And it probably all starts out with basic anatomy and physiology. So I think we'll we'll sort of divide those groups up into two. So... We'll start with fish. Most fish swim around in the water most of the time. And they have gills. So they get their oxygen from the water. And so they respire in the water. Whereas terrestrial animals, mammals, and also reptiles, breathe air. So that's a big challenge, but not insurmountable and actually quite manageable, is when we're working with fish to make sure they're life support needs are met and that involves some innovation, creativity, but mostly it's just about pumping clean water over their gills whenever we're doing things with them. Moving on to the reptiles, let's talk about turtles. Probably my favorite group to work on. They've got that big shell, right? It's bone. Um, They're the only animals in the world where the shoulder, um, the shoulders and the hips are inside of the ribs. So they've got some odd anatomical challenges compared with, with mammals and birds. But again, not insurmountable. But and then, you know, if you think about snakes, again, one of my favorites, you know, they don't have any legs. And so sometimes that makes our jobs easier and sometimes it makes it harder. So all in all, I think the key to, to being successful, or at least to learning, is being willing to um, accept the challenges that these different animals present, and then try to, to use a cliche, right, to MacGyver your way through the cases.
0: Right. That's what I was thinking. So, or maybe a MedGyver in this case.
1: MedGyver. Um, I like yeah. it.
0: <laughs> well, you, you helped found the turtle rescue team, which is a pretty popular. Um, group here, and you regularly do help treat injured sea turtles. If a human breaks a bone, we're going to put a plaster cast on it um, and just kind of immobilize it. But you can't really do that with turtles. What are some of the other strategies um, your team has
1: found useful treating them? Sometimes we're, you know, we'll take a, a yogurt cup and stick the turtle on top of that and then we can go and have a snack or prepare something, and that turtle is just sort of suspended in midair and it can't get away. So um, we use plumber's putty, um, clothing hooks from, from ladies' dresses. We, we use those to secure fractured shells with super glue or sometimes the medical formulation of it. But, you know, a lot of times, As we've talked, Tracy, we're going to Home Depot or Lowe's to find some things we need. And because these animals present some challenges, if they're pretty severely injured or the the stabilization process is going to be involved, um, they're anesthetized. So the yogurt cup is out of play. But where the yogurt cup or whatever other cottage cheese cups are actually quite good too, where that comes into play is usually wound management dressing wounds examining turtles but let's take it a step back because it's a great question so um, so i graduated veterinary school 32 years ago so i've been at this for a while and even when i was a student back in the mid 80s i remember watching and learning to treat to fix turtles with fiberglass and bondo like you might fix a car or maybe a hole in a boat um and i i understand where that comes from but it's sort of skipping over the part where the shell is made of vascular bone it's alive i mean that works great like if you break a vase or something but there's an animal under that and so when i got to nc state I officially started in um, January of 1993. We're talking before there was you know, any kind of active internet and certainly social media. And but still, tur- and we weren't, and there was no turtle team. But still, people put two and two together. I found a turtle on the road. My dog chewed up a turtle. There's a college of veterinary medicine in town. Let me go see if they can help. So I think that first year, 1993, I saw about 10 turtles. These were good Samaritans bringing the turtle in. Then they would, you know, in those days, they would page me. Hey, Lubart, there's a turtle. You're a turtle guy. I'd come look at it. And I'd start patching it up the way I was taught. And the turtles were dying. So that next year, I think we saw 30 turtles. And then I connected with a local wildlife rehabilitator named Linda Hennis. And then we formed like a team. She would triage turtles, and if she thought they needed a veterinarian, then she would bring them to me. And, and uh, about that same time, and, and you know, it's not just me. I, I did start the turtle team, but uh, my colleague, Dr. Stoskov said, you know, we really need to get the orthopedic surgeons involved. Let's raise the bar. So we, we brought over uh, Dr. Rowe and Dr. Uh, Marcellin, and we said, look, we got these broken turtles, There must be a better way to fix them. And I'm not saying we invented this. You know, people all over the world have been coming up with different techniques. But they said, well, why don't we treat this like a broken bone in a dog? And you mentioned stabilization. That's the the key. However you can do it, however you can reduce the fracture, so put the ends together, clean, healthy vascular with blood supply ends together, and then stabilize it so it doesn't move. That is the goal whether that's with duct tape or clothing hooks, but the technique the orthopedic surgeons helped us with were surgical screws and wires. You basically drill holes in the shell, fix screws in there, not not real long screws, maybe just a few millimeters. And then you do a figure eight wire to kind of cinch the bone edges together. And we published on that and we did that for, oh, I don't know, maybe 15 years, maybe almost 20 years. And it it was working, but it does add more trauma to a turtle. Sometimes we were drilling eight, 10, a dozen holes into a shell. And it was really veterinary students that they said, you know, can we do this without drilling more holes in the turtle? And, and there was a paper published in 2008 with the clothing hook method. So these were colleagues in Boston that did this work. And then we switched over to a less invasive method most of the time. Now, sea turtles it doesn't work as well with sea turtles first of all they're in seawater that's a challenge and their shell is actually a little more spongy than um than a let's say a box turtle so sometimes we're still putting in screws or plates you know actually stainless steel plates because they're such big animals in in many cases so yeah that's and we're always Evolving and changing, and frequently that's driven by students.
0: Right. I think it's interesting that we move from treating a turtle shell like a car. <laughs> With like Bondo, like to realizing that these are bone injuries just like people have, just like dogs have, and then moving to even less and less invasive ways to treat it. It's, it's kind of a neat evolution to watch, even though it's kind of hilarious to see, you know, when you come in and there's like a little turtle with ladies' dress hooks glued to the back yeah. and wire woven but, in among it.
1: In fact, most of the top shell, what we call the carapace, is a combination of fused ribs, fused backbone, and something we call dermal bone it's kind of a bone that comes from skin cells that's so that's amazing and then the other thing about turtles and amphibians other reptiles is that they don't have a diaphragm so they have no chest so this is another thing that's different than the standard mammalian medicine whether it's human medicine or veterinary medicine is they just have like a bag of guts right i know that's Kind of really taking it to the basic level. But, you know, when you're dealing with an ad like like a human or a dog, the pressure is different in the chest cavity than it is in the abdomen, so that we can breathe and exchange gases. And then there's that diaphragm, you know, when you get the hiccups or you get the breath knocked out of you, that's what happens. But that reptiles, everything's all kind of together. So it makes it simpler in a lot of ways. Um, actually, you know, the liver and the stomach, uh, actually, and the intestines actually touch the lungs. Oh, wow. Yeah. Other quirky things about reptiles is they're generally what we call very hypoxia tolerant. So they can hold their breath a long time. You know, a sea turtle, probably (laughs) it's so funny. Like we'll have them under, and if, if it's a, Someone who has, hasn't anesthetized a turtle before, especially a sea turtle. And we'll have them under anesthesia for an hour. And then someone will say, hey, what's the heart rate? And we'll say, um, oh, it's two. They'll say, two? Two what? We'll say, two beats per minute. And without, you know, for us, that's fine, but that would not be a very healthy mammal. Not you know. at
0: all. Not at all. That's amazing. Two beats and per minute.
1: Their swim around rate is probably dependent on the species and temperature and size, because that's the other thing about these cold-blooded animals. Their, their physiology is very much determined by their environment. Well, We're 98.6. We're, mammals and birds have a, what we call homeostasis. Everything's pretty much the same most of the time. And we do a lot of things to regulate that. We wear clothes and we heat up the house and we move blood around a little bit. But these animals, they can change a lot. A sea turtle probably in the wild can hold it routinely hold its breath for an hour. In a pinch, probably three hours. Think about animals, think about turtles, let's say in Canada, like a snapping turtle or a painted turtle. They live under ice for four or five, maybe six months a year. They don't breathe at all. And they, they don't breathe. They have some different tricks. Like they can turn their mouth and their rear end, the opening of their vent, into a little gill. So they can actually—it's it, very vascular, what we call a mucous membrane—and they turn parts of themselves into gills so they can survive. And they slow everything down. You know, they don't need much.
0: Does that have an effect on how long it takes a turtle to heal from an injury as well? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So. Well, here's, we'll throw out some numbers. So let's say your dog gets uh, surgery and it has sutures put in. Most veterinarians are are taking those sutures out in 10 days, maybe 14 days. Reptiles, I like to leave sutures in for six weeks. Very minimum four weeks. And, you know, a couple more weeks just because they heal slowly. Now fish, it's interesting, even though fish are cold-blooded, they heal pretty fast and and I think that's because they have to like if you're a fish and you've got somebody took a bite out of you you really need to close that thing up pretty quickly or you're going to be vulnerable to uh, other predators and parasites
0: well that brings me to the next question I had which is fish nowadays you know we've come a long way from You win the goldfish in a bag at the state fair and it maybe survives a week kind of thing like they're very precious now both in terms of value you have people raising koi for example and spending thousands of dollars um and an emotional attachment and they're even surgical candidates how did how has this evolved how has this changed and what you know how's the treatment of fish basically evolved since you started your career
1: yeah i love that question that's a really good question so well you know it's interesting we i have worked on fish looked at fish worth more than racehorses worth more than some people's houses it's hard for people to process that like i looked at a fish in 2001 i was in japan giving some lectures and i visited the largest fish farm in the world outside of hiroshima and the owner or the owner's son asked me if i would look at this one particular fish that was behaving abnormally this fish in 2001 the owner turned down two hundred thousand dollars for it
0: good grief
1: since then the record koi fish and you can look this up is 1.6 million dollars for a fish fish that weighs about i mean this is no This isn't your average fish. I mean, this is a fish that's a meter long, so over three feet long, probably weighs about 40 pounds. Now, that's, you know, that's the Van Gogh, that's the Picasso of the fish world, right? There's plenty of other, you know, regular old fish, and and it goes all the way down. But I certainly have seen my share of six figure fish and plenty of five figure fish yet. And I think some of my best clients. I won't even say I think my best clients are fish clients, and in particular goldfish clients. People that own goldfish and love their goldfish. I'm telling you, I I could go through a long list of dedicated goldfish owners, including one, you know, that some that come from a fair that managed to survive whatever and the obstacles are, and I. The, the oldest goldfish client, I the oldest goldfish patient, I had died at 29 years old.
0: 29? 29.
1: 29. This is a regular old goldfish. I've seen plenty in teenagers. I have a koi. I had a koi patient that now is in its 40s. If it's still alive, it actually survived its owner. Oh, wow. Owner passed away. Um, so let's talk about, but your question was, how are things changed? So how I got into this whole game is I graduated in 1988, the University of Pennsylvania, and um, I, I wanted to be an aquatic animal veterinarian. Look, there have been people doing fish medicine for many decades, but very few were veterinarians. They were, they were fisheries biologists, aquaculturists, um, researchers, that sort of thing. Veterinarians kind of got into the game a little late. Let's bring it back to the, when I started here. I saw a fish in 1993 named Zeus. Zeus is a... A Midas cichlid. This is a fish, kind of like a like an Oscar. Most people kind of know what an Oscar is or a Jack Dempsey. You know, the size of a like a like a big sunfish. People loved it. It had a swim bladder problem. And I spoke to the local, the Raleigh Aquarium Society, and these people said, "Hey, we've got this fish named Zeus. We really love him. He's standing on his head. He's been like that a couple of years. Can you help?" And I said, "I don't know, but we can work him up." And really, for me. The way I've been able to to succeed is in the vet community or the vet environment is with all the specialists there. I rely on a team approach. And so, hey, let's get x rays and let's get a surgeon involved. And then, that case, we operated on that fish. It was a 70 minute procedure. We took out part of the swim bladder, sutured him up. He recovered. We published it in the American Journal of Veterinary Medicine. And I'm fairly sure that's the first published surgery case of a pet fish. Now it's routine. Now we see about one pet fish a week at NC State.
0: Now are these, you know, you're talking about Zeus. He's he's a pretty sizable fish yeah. comparatively. What about these little tiny goldfish like little tiny drug, a,
1: pet store goldfish? Tiny fighting fish, the beta fish?
0: Yeah, or the beta I fish. Bet
1: you this year we've seen maybe four or five
0: on a fish that size what exactly can you do for
1: them we're limited so i'll give you a success story recently so there was a beta fish it's actually owned by someone at the vet school it uh, maybe it's i think it's three years old it just looked bad it just its color didn't look good its fins didn't look good it just but, you know, its water quality was apparently OK. It lives by itself. So that's a big help. When a fish is only living by itself and other fish aren't coming in contact with it, that bodes well for your, the diagnosis because it probably doesn't have something infectious that was introduced. A lot of people don't properly quarantine fish. So what do you think? Let's see. So I'll, I'll, I'll put you on the spot. So you've got this fish. It lives by itself. Um, the environment looks good to me, like the tank looks good, the water looks good, but the fish just doesn't look good. Like if this was a dog or a person, I mean, what, what, what kind of thing might you think to ask about?
0: Is the fish eating? Yeah. Is the
1: fish going to the bathroom? Like you basic You right off, right off the bat. Is it eating? Yes. But what is it eating? So here's the thing. And this is really what exotic animal medicine boils down to is what, you know, we kind of have a, the dog and the cow and the, even the horse and most domestic, even chickens, pretty figured out. Like we know how to take them from a little baby and grow them into whatever purpose we want pretty efficiently and relatively safely or without disease not completely and there are issues but many many decades of research and experience have gone into it there are 30,000 species of fish there's one species of dog right different breeds but they're all the same dog 30,000 species now I don't know in my career I I could probably figure it out maybe I've worked with 300 right what is that that's not even one per, that, that's And that's, that's probably being a little generous. When I say worked with, like I've netted them, treated them. And then if you think about, well, what do we really know about those animals? What do they eat in the wild? Who are their friends? Who are their enemies? Think of, I mean, it's just very complicated. Then we try to replicate that in a 10 gallon tank. It's a lot, it's a big ask. A lot of people say, well, why isn't my chameleon doing well? Or why isn't my discus fish doing well or why aren't these corals thriving? My answer is it's a, it's a high bar to get over to figure out how to replicate nature. OK, so let's get back to our beta fish. Kind of have them figured out. These are raised in captivity. They're raised in, in Thailand, where they're native. Well, one of the problems, fish food off the shelf, and we've made good strides with nutrition, but that stuff has a shelf life. and one little beta fish like a jar of you know even a, even a small container of beta food is probably going to last years but the vitamins are only good for maybe six months so going back to our fish friend i said well what's eating okay you're you're which you thought of yeah well, how about the food i checked the food they had three containers one expired in 2014. This is this year. One expired in 2014, one in 2015, and the newest, freshest 2016 expired. Oh, wow. So it's four years old. I showed, I, I showed the owner the can, and she was pretty alarmed. She bought some new fish food. The fish looks dynamite now. Looks great. Miracle cure. Excellent.
0: Just fresh fish food. That's it. Uh, what about um, fish that size if they have a swim bladder problem? Yeah. You know, I've, I've had the beta fish that, or the goldfish that suddenly one day couldn't dive. You know, they just did this little thing where they were kind of up toward the...
1: Yeah. Tell me about
0: sideways it. Sideways like, and, you know... If I, could,
1: if I could, if I had a magic bullet and it could fix one fish problem, like if somebody said, Greg, you get to pick it, I would pick buoyancy challenged goldfish. Upside down goldfish, sideways goldfish, goldfish laying on the bottom, goldfish, because it's a it's really not a disease. It's a it's a manifestation of probably a number of diseases. If you think about it, if your dog is sick or you're sick, you're not going to be as mobile. You may lay down. What if you have gas? And I'm not saying that every fish or maybe any fish that floats has that problem. But they are a fine-tuned little animal machine that's neutrally buoyant. And if there's gas anywhere where it shouldn't be in the, in the GI tract or if there's a swim bladder problem, they can end up floating upside down or on their side. And there are other contributing factors. A lot of goldfish you know you, you know about bulldogs and some of these breeds that we've selected for certain traits that make it harder for them to breathe or run or walk. Well, goldfish have been selected sometimes to be very round and plump with a big uh, mass on their head or big bags under their eyes. And these things all contribute to their tendency to, to have buoyancy problems. So let's just say we have a goldfish that's five years old and is like that. We, first we like to identify the problem. So if the owners are up for it, we'll take an X-ray. Sometimes we do ultrasound. Sometimes we take air out of the swim bladder and make them neutrally buoyant. But I'll tell you that's really just palliative. It's just like a temporary fix is usually they fill back up. I've got a fish patient right now named Teddy. This owner loves this fish. And this is usually the end game for a lot of these fish is they end up being negatively buoyant, on the bottom but pretty happy like they're facing the right way they eat they can swim and sometimes we we have taken part of swim bladders out of fish sometimes the swim bladder contracts and gets diseased and sometimes if it's a beta fish there may be very little we can do we you know when the you know a beta fish weighs about two to three grams which means you could put 10 in an envelope and mail it with a first class stamp (laughs) <laughs> so, because the first, because an ounce is about 28 grams. That just to put it in perspective. So they can be a challenge. Um, but we, ha- you know, we've had a couple betas in the last couple years with cancer. They, they can get, they get these, they're, it's like a melanoma in a human. They, because they have a lot of colorful cells in their skin. And I don't know if it's genetic, but we're seeing an increase in cancer in betta fish. That's wild. And a lot of times they're too small, probably to irradiate. You can imagine, it would just be like. Poof. So we're just limited in what we can do. Mostly we're just trying to debulk the tumor, make it smaller, maybe give the fish pain meds or antibiotics. But you know, size does matter. I mean, it, you can be limited.
0: Right. That kind of leads into the follow-up question, which is, I know that you had a hand in developing one way to perform surgical procedures on fish. And so these are obviously not going to be beta fish size necessarily. Or no, maybe, a, maybe you have like a little tiny table.
1: But we did once. We you've probably heard of fish. Yeah. So they're very important lab animals, um, really have probably in some ways surpassed, um, you know, the lab rat for utility in research. Some of these fish are quite valuable genetically. And they're small, they're beta fish size. So we, we did do surgery on one that had a swollen abdomen. This is probably 10 years ago. And one of the technicians rigged up a system using a fluids bag. Like if you're going to give somebody IV fluids and put the anesthetic water in the bag, and then it had the tube that ran into the fish's mouth and just drip, drip, and the guy that did the surgeon, his name's Trey Clark. He's now the head vet at SeaWorld in San Diego. And that fish did survive the surgery. That would have been out of my league. That fish weighed a couple grams. But generally, we call it the FADS, the fish anesthesia delivery system that Dr. Harms and I uh, published on a, back in 99. That's really meant for fish that are, you know, hand size and above.
0: And you guys developed this one. Was this one of those, hey, run to Home Depot and let's see if we can figure out how to do surgery on a fish kind of deals?
1: It was seeing how we could teach surgery to a bunch of zoo vets in Omaha kind of deal. So this was 1998 and we had been doing some fish surgeries. We had a student named Robert Bacall who actually developed quite a involved anesthesia machine with lots of bells and, I mean, I would say bells and whistles, like valves and different things. And it worked great, but it was, it was on a big cart. It wasn't very, it wasn't shippable. You know, we could wheel it around, but it, it really wasn't modular. And Craig Harms and I were asked to go out to this meeting, the zoo meeting, and teach zoo fish surgery. So we um, made this machine with uh, a pump and some tubing. And in an aquarium, we went and bought some mattress material and an electric knife and put this thing together. And we figured out we could do them for about $25. And then we shipped 10 or 12 of these to Omaha. You know, we just took a lot of components and put it together. And aqua- we, you know, we didn't invent the pump. We used an aquarium pump, some tubing from Home Depot, some mattress material from a mattress shop, and we had a plexiglass company make us the tops and then really if you can imagine it's nothing more than a fountain like you might have in your bird bath and the water just recirculates and then you put anesthetic in the water and then the tube instead of coming out of like a, a frog's mouth on your fountain the tube goes into the mouth of a fish and irrigates the gills with water and you can keep a fish under for hours. People have doing some creative stuff in the the decade since. Um, Some people make like a trough, like a V, and they may line that with some surgical towels or some kind of soft material. We still use the foam sometimes, but we've even further modified. We've actually further modified that FADS. One of our technicians, uh, Kent Passingham, we call it the CADS now, after Kent's anesthesia delivery system, instead of an aquarium and plexiglass, which are somewhat expensive, he uses a, like a Rubbermaid sweater box and a cutting board. And then that sits na- neatly on top. And these things are stackable, very easy to clean. So it's, and you know, sometimes, let's say your fish is three feet long, you're gonna to have to MacGyver it, right? You can, But there are all kinds of ways to do it. You could use a bigger Rubbermaid container, a bigger pump, bigger tube. It's always frequently a challenge, but always fun.
0: Yeah, I like it. It doesn't have to be high cost to be- No. High enough tech to get the job done. That's So that's, that's right. good to know. Yeah. Well, that brings me to my final question, which is what is your favorite success story in working with aquatic animals?
1: That's a great question. I find a lot of times a little bit like the beta fish in the food, sometimes the most rewarding cases are the simplest ones. I'm not sure it's anything I did or didn't do, but it's a really rewarding case. Oh, it probably goes back to about, about six or seven years ago. I got an email from a potential client that their koi just wasn't doing well. And um, they had been nursing it along for a couple of weeks, and it was, laying on its side and it was curled up usually a bad sign in other words the tail was sort of curved up like a c so that's usually not good when that's happening and it was laying on its side and floating a little bit i think it was the left side that was up the only thing it had going for it well it had two things going for it it was still eating when the owner's hand fed it So when an animal's still taking nutrition, that's one thing that's in your favor as a clinician. And the first thing I think of when I see a koi that has like a curved spine or can't swim, but the other fish in the pond are okay, which they were, is I think about trauma. And in in particular, this is gonna sound pretty crazy if you haven't heard it before, is lightning strike. It's documented that a lightning storm, a thunderstorm with lightning that strikes in or near a pond can break the backs of fish and they think it's the electric surge the acute electric surge that causes a rapid contraction of the muscles i've seen this and it doesn't affect all the fish in a pond so the first thing i asked the owners is since this happened have there been any thunderstorms no and the other fish were okay so i thought well maybe it's not that so then we x-rayed it and the spine looked good but it was curved upwards as i mentioned but it wasn't what we call scoliosis which is a curvature of the spine you know like a sigmoid it it looked okay the swim bladder looked big on the left side abnormally big and so we anesthetized the fish and with an we had ultrasound on it we put a needle in the swim bladder and pulled out air until the fish was neutrally buoyant in the middle of the water. But in my experience, as I mentioned earlier, they usually, there's usually some problem that causes that air to return. And there's some anatomical peculiarities. Koi fish and goldfish are rel- closely related and those kinds of fish actually gulp air. They, they can take in air and it goes into their swim bladder and they can burp air out. But if there's a problem in that anatomy, then they could end up having buoyancy problems. So this fish was a bit of a conundrum, right? Um, it was very skinny. It had the swim bladder issue and the curved tail. And so we put it, typically what we'll do is treat the treatable. We ruled out you know, the water quality was good. I don't think it had any parasites. So we put it on antibiotics, because sometimes they can get a swim bladder infection. They might even aspirate water from the environment into the swim bladder. It's possible. So we put it on antibiotics. We added salt to the water. Freshwater fish can tolerate a fair amount of salt. and Sometimes it probably helps them uh, with their fluid regulation and also replaces some electrolytes like sodium and chloride. So we did that. We made sure the owners kept feeding it. In the back of my mind, I thought best case scenario is the fish spends the rest of its life on the bottom, but more or less happy, eating, just not swimming normally. That was, I thought, would be a good outcome and um i have all this documented and i have all the emails from the owner The fish's name is flash 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 so a week goes by and the owner's pretty upset it's around easter time said oh flash really looks pitiful um still you know we're giving it the antibiotics it's eating and then a week later it's like wow we've noticed quite a change in flash he seems a lot perkier and he's actually getting up off. You know, it, I think after we took the air out, he sort of sunk for a while and they said, Oh, he's getting up off the bottom. And then a week later, they said, We can't, it's a, you know, I don't think they use the word miracle, but they said, This is amazing. Flash is swimming. And then and a week later, he was out in his pond. To this day, I don't know how that fish recovered. That's the only, koi fish with a problem like that that i have seen recover what i would say is hundred percent that's my favorite outcome i wish i could say i wish i could repeat that i think you can't underestimate the the power of good nursing care what those owners were willing to do you know hand feed it and treat it and kind of baby it and um, they send me a picture every year.
0: What's the average lifespan for a koi fish? Like, we've talked to the, about the seriously old ones.
1: They're very sensitive. And, you know, you've got to really stay on top of the water quality. I can tell you horror stories about koi in North Carolina hurricanes, um, power outages, ice storms, predators, blue herons, all those things take their toll. But your question's a good one. I would say hurricanes, blue herons, um, other disasters aside, probably 15 to 20 years old.
0: So, well worth the investment oh, in yeah. surgery and surgery and medical treatment well, and all of that. Yeah.
1: Well worth it. And, you know, these animals, they do respond to their owners. Um, I think if you talk to koi people, they say, My coin knows my shadow my, my cadence, the way I walk, they really do respond to certain people. I I had a client, she brought her goldfish in for us to treat. We were going to work it up and she, it was in a, like a white five gallon bucket. And then she left. These were in the days when owners came into the vet school and I hope they're going to return soon. And then she came running back in. She said, Oh my goodness. I forgot to, I forgot to kiss bubbles. Goodbye. And she reached in picked up the goldfish kissed it on the lips and put it back <laughs> no so they're they're serious there people that kiss their fish the bond is the human animal bond can go to a lot of different species it's pretty cool
0: that is indeed well thank you so much for being here and sharing these great stories today i was i was amazed at the stuff that people will do for their pets and The way that treatment's evolved as pet ownership has expanded in different and interesting ways.
1: It's very enlightening and enriching, and I really appreciate the opportunity, Tracy.
0: We've been speaking today with Greg Lubart, professor of aquatic medicine here at NC State's College of Veterinary Medicine. This has been Audio Abstract. I'm your host, Tracy Peek. Thank you so much for listening.